You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. Those of you who are watching us online, thank you for inviting us into your home. We want to invite you into our home. Love for you to come and join us sometime on a Sunday morning. Uh, love to be able to fellowship with you and worship with you. Those of you who are out of town and other places that are watching, thank you for tuning in this morning. And it's so good to see all of you here as well. Um, how many of you have ever had somebody in your life that kind of provokes you towards certain things? You know, those people who are provokers or, or, or those who bring provocation to your life. Some of you are afraid to raise your hand because they might be sitting next to you, right? Yeah, well, all of us have that. And sometimes people who provoke us can be for bad things or it can be for good things. I happen to be married to one. And uh, my wife, Chris, provokes me in all kinds of wonderful ways. I mean, she really does. She provokes me in some positive ways, but she also provokes me with some, some, you know, just some fun, goofy stuff for her own pleasure, I guess I could say. And she's always doing that. I mean, yesterday, we went to the beach yesterday afternoon. And we, everybody went to the beach yesterday afternoon, it appears. And we're walking through this little narrow trail, and I'm walking in front of her just in case any snakes come by. I'm trying to protect my woman, you know. So I'm walking in front of her, and I feel this sand hitting on the back of me. And then I keep feeling it. It's getting higher and higher. And I turn around, and she is just kicking sand on me the whole way we're walking. You know that's true. She's sitting right there in the middle looking all innocent and everything. And she's kicking sand on me, and I turn around, and I said ladies first. And she said, no, I want you to lead me. And I said, how about if we walk side by side? And she said, okay, good. And we're walking by the side and then she's doing this. So, I mean, she always does. She's pinching my, my legs with her toes at night. And, and she says, I have the right to do that and you can't do anything about it. And so she provokes me in a number of fun ways like that. But, but she actually is one of the most disciplined people I know and she has the knack of being able to provoke me in some very positive ways. And she does that both in our spiritual life and, and just in our life in general. Many years ago when we first moved here, um, you know, time was catching up with us. We'd been married several years and um, we had gotten out of exercising. We were putting on some weight and things like that. And she got to running and started working out diligently. And she still does today. And she just started getting in great shape. And she just looked at me one day and she says, don't you want to start running with me? In other words... Big boy, you need to lose some pounds. You know, let's get it going here. And so she starts provoking me to run with her. And so I said, okay, okay. I haven't run in years. I'll do it. And so we start running. We're running on a loop road right here. By the way, the loop road is 4.8 miles around. And she has been running it for a time, and I haven't been running it. So I thought, what's the big deal? I can run with her. And so we're running along, and, and I'm doing really well for about the first mile. And then all of a sudden, I'm just dying. And she is running, and she's just talking up a storm to me. Da, 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 da. And I'm not saying anything. And she says, you're quiet today. I said, baby, when you can't breathe, everything's secondary. <laughs> everything. And so we're running along, and, and, and what she does to try to encourage me, and she's got all this energy, she starts running in circles around me. In the middle of the loop road, and she's singing, come on, baby, you can do it. Put a little ump to it. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, she got out in front of me and she starts doing cartwheels with all this energy, and I'm dying. Now, I have never wished anything bad on my wife, ever. But I was thinking, if she would just sprang that ankle, this nonsense would be over. <laughs> but she has been a person who has provoked me with a purpose through the years. And, and all of us know that there are time to times we need to be provoked in our lives. Because this thing called complacency comes in, doesn't it? And sometimes we can become so complacent with our lives. Complacency is just simply an attitude of settling for second best. It's an attitude of just settling in. And sometimes the Holy Spirit of God comes along and he provokes us out of our complacency. He speaks to our hearts. He, he brings his word to us. Sometimes he uses people. And when this provocation comes along, a lot of times it is for a specific purpose, but more often than not, it does come with some pain. This morning, as we continue in our series on who's that, we're going to be looking at a lady in the Old Testament who was a woman who was provoked for a purpose. Her name appears in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. So take your Bibles and open to 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. Her name is seen through the pages of Old Testament scripture as a very pious woman. Many times pastors will preach about her on Mother's Day or some kind of motherhood message because she certainly is a picture of that. But we're going to go way beyond the bounds of motherhood this morning. We're going to go way beyond the bounds of a Mother's Day message because what we're going to see in her life is how she was provoked for a purpose and what this provocation in her life brought to bringing her to a place where God is glorified. Because every one of us, every single day, we can face provocation. We can face difficulties that provoke us to different areas of our lives. And God wants to use all of that for his glory. Her name is Hannah. She is the mother of one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, the mother of Samuel. And we find her story in 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to give you the, the setting of what's happening. You've just come out of the book of Judges, then there's Ruth. But the picture is that Israel is in disarray. There is no king, there's no one leader in Israel at this point. There seems to be this confederacy of loosely connected tribes that are all gathering together in Shiloh to worship God. But in the midst of all of that, in trying to gather together, there are marauding bands of enemies through the other nations coming through, and they're bringing havoc and persecution to the people of Israel. But there's no one leader. So God has been raising up judges. Samson was a judge. Gideon was a judge. Deborah was a judge. And God raises up these judges to bring protection and deliverance from the enemies. Well, everything's a mess in the culture. And then there's the religious mess. There's a corruption in the worship of God. Worship has become just religiosity. It's become um, just this kind of um, ritual approach. And so there's a staleness there. Eli is the high priest in Shiloh, but he has two sons who are worthless. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. Not the same Phinehas that Garrett preached about. This was a worthless man. 
They were taking the sacrifices of the Lord and taking the best pieces of meat for themselves and eating it, and they were having um, sexual relationships with women inside the tent of meeting. They were worthless men. So there's this marauding bands constantly, and there's a stale religion. In the midst of all of this, there's a godly family. And we find that godly family. And there are three main characters to this family. And it begins to unfold in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephratite. Obviously, nobody in that name is in that family is called Bill or George or John. Okay. Now, Elkanah had two wives, which means that he was probably a very wealthy man. And in this culture, it was not uncommon for men to have more than one wife. Polygamy was often practiced, but polygamy was never something ordained by God. God had never ordained that. In fact, Jesus even speaks against polygamy, against having two wives. Jesus said, no man shall serve two masters. So you understand that there cannot be two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Now, Hannah, her name means grace, mercy, compassion, kindness, she was a woman that was very gentle, passionate, kind, full of grace. Panina, her name actually means pearl, which means she was very beautiful. She was probably a gorgeous young woman, but her name also means venomous, poisonous, critical. And so we're going to see how these play out together. And Panina had children. We're going to find from the text that Peninnah had at least four children. It says she has sons and daughters. But Hannah had no children. Hannah was barren. And you can see right away the tension that is beginning to build in the family. There's Elkanah married to Hannah, most likely his first wife. And then there's Peninnah, who is beautiful and venomous. Now, here's what we see, verse 3. This man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. It's very clear that Elkanah is a godly man. He's a worshiper of Almighty God. And he goes up every year to Shiloh. From Ramah to Shiloh is about a 10-mile journey, which is mostly by foot. Now, it's very clear that Elkanah didn't go up on his own. He brought his whole family. He brought Hannah, he brought Peninnah, he brought her children, most likely all of the servants. So they're all going up to worship God in Shiloh. And this probably isn't a very pleasant journey as we're going to see. And as they go up together, they're going as a family to worship, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Very wicked worship. But on the day when Elkanah sacrificed he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now you see the scene. 
as they're going up, there is this constant provocation in Hannah's life. And the one thing that we're going to see from Hannah is how God uses this provocation in her life to bring great glory. Here's the first thing that we're going to see is this, that provocation can produce great pain. When people are provoked, great pain can flow out of that, even though it may be positive for something that God wants to do. Seldom does it come without pain. And what we see in Hannah's life is as she's going along, there's certain things that are causing her great pain. One thing is circumstances outside of her control. The scripture says twice in this passage that the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. Those are circumstances outside of her control, which means this, she recognized by God's sovereignty and his providence, for whatever reason he decided, she wasn't able to have children. So that was outside of her control. And no doubt, that brought great pain for her. Why? Most scholars believe that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife and that he loved Hannah, but she couldn't have children. Children was necessary in this culture to carry on the family name. Children was necessary to carry on the heirs of that family in the future. Children were necessary to bring about the birth of the Messiah. And when a woman could not have a child, she was seen with less dignity and self-worth in that culture. In fact, many people must have looked at Hannah and must have thought, what is wrong with her? God's not giving her favor. She's not blessed by God. Therefore, maybe she's got some sin in her life. And the people around probably were gossiping about poor Hannah. But here's what's interesting. That even Elkanah, recognizing that he needed to carry on the name, needed another wife. And the presence of Peninnah around her home was a constant reminder that she couldn't have kids. And so there was pain because of circumstances outside of her control. But there was also pain that flowed from critical people in her circle. Look at verse 6. And her rival, Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Here's Hannah, this woman of grace. Here's Peninnah, venomous, walking alongside her, constantly reminding her that she could not have kids and poking a sore spot in her heart and making it worse and worse. Now, now here's a crazy picture. The scripture doesn't tell us exactly what Peninnah did, but you can imagine, can't you? You can only imagine the venomous um, um, attitudes and words coming out of Peninnah. Hey, Hannah, Hannah, got great news. I'm pregnant. (laughs) You want to tell Elkanah with me? Wouldn't he be so happy? Hey, Hannah, you won't believe this. I am pregnant again. I've got another one coming along. I I know that Elkanah is going to be so happy. Hannah, could you change the diaper of this little one while I go take care of my other three kids? Hannah, doesn't he look just like his daddy? Looking more and more like Elkanah every day. Hey, kids, could y'all go play with Aunt Hannah? She's really lonely. She doesn't have any kids in her life. Thank you, Hannah. Take care of them. You can hear the venom. And the thing that made it worse was apparently Peninnah was a baby factory getting pregnant all the time. 
Now, here's the thing that we miss many times from this passage. I don't believe there was just one victim here, Hannah. I believe there were two, Peninnah and Hannah. Why do I say that? Hannah couldn't have any kids, but Elkanah loved her. Peninnah could have the babies, but Elkanah loved Hannah. And here's the point. Pain is inevitable in our lives. How I handle that pain is optional. Because pain will either make me bitter or it will make me better. And what is happening in Hannah's life is she understands that putting that pain into the right hands is going to make it better. But here's Peninnah. She's over here desperately wanting the attention of her husband, Elkanah. Maybe one more child. Maybe another child. Maybe finally today he will love me. And you know what I've learned over the years? People who have pain and it's making them bitter, there's one thing that constantly flows through their life, and I've discovered this. Hurt people hurt people. You know that's true? Hurt people hurt people. And every person in this room is going to encounter pain. In fact, every person in this room has encountered pain. But the question is, what am I going to do with that pain? Am I going to keep that pain for myself? If I'm going to use that pain to define who I am, then I become a crusty, cynical, angry, jealous, suspicious, looking at everything with a jaundiced eye approach. And then I begin to spend my life hurting people because I've been hurt. And the thing that I'm doing is I'm hanging on to the pain of my past, and that has become to define me. And everybody in my life knows that I'm a critical, unhappy, angry, unforgiving person. And they know it. But the people who have pain in their life and take it to the Lord Jesus and bring it to him and leave it with him knows this, that I am not going to be defined by my pain. Instead, I'm going to be delivered through his pain, his pain on the cross. And there's some of you today, you're carrying pain around that the Lord Jesus doesn't want you to carry He's already gone to the cross on behalf of you. Somebody's let you down. Somebody's hurt you. Somebody's provoked you. And now you're beginning to turn bitter inside. And I want to tell you, the bitterness never stays with you. It pours into all the areas of your life. And the Lord may be provoking some of you right now to bring your pain to him because he's the only one that's going to deliver you from that because he's the only one that went to the cross on your behalf. He's the only one that took the pain of separation between a holy God and himself. He's the only one who took the pain of paying the price for your sin. He's the only one who died for you. And he's saying to you right now, listen, the pain that's in your life, I want to use to make you better. But you got to give it to me. See, I want to tell you something, that it always, always in relationships, there's always the risk for pain. But what are you going to do with it? What does Hannah do with it? It's in the right hands. She understands that even in the midst of all of this pain, she wants God to use it. How do we know that? How the story continues. Here's the second thing we need to see about pain. Pain, rightly understood, can produce great godly character. 
pain that's rightly understood in the hands of God can bring about a godly character in our lives. We see this being played out in Hannah's life. Look at verse seven. So it went on year by year. This was an ongoing thing. This wasn't a one-time event. Every single year when they went up to Shiloh, she knew what was going to happen. She knew Peninnah was going to just stick the knife deeper into the wounds of her heart. And yet every bit of that, she seems to be given to the Lord. How do we know? As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. You know what Hannah never did? She never lashed back. She never came back and just called her names. She never came back and demonstrated anything other than patience. She was patient with her rival. She was waiting on God in the midst of this incredible pain. Now, it's one thing for your rival to create pain, and you can understand that Panina is a hurt person and she's venomous to the core, but she was also hurt by her own husband, Elkanah. Let me explain. Her husband loved her. The scripture says he loved Hannah. But Elkanah, like too many of us men, wasn't real bright in how to best love her. He didn't quite have it all together. He couldn't figure it out. He thought what he was going to do was going to help her out, and she's going to know that he loves her. So what does he do? Let's go back to verse 5. One day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all the sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Now this, you would think, in Elkanah's mind, is thinking, hey, I'm going to show Hannah I really love her. I'm going to give the portions to Peninnah and her children, but I'm going to give twice as much to Hannah. That ended up being an insult. Why? Whenever you gave portions to a family, you gave in accordance to all who were in the family. So he goes to Panina, and let's say she only had four kids. She probably had more than that. Let's say she just had four. He would have given her, let's say, five big T-bone steaks. Put it right in front of her. Here are five steaks, Panina. Take care of your kids. He goes to Hannah. He kind of winks at her. Hey, I got 10 for you, baby. <laughs> 10? That was a reminder that she had nobody else to feed but herself. It was a reminder that I can't eat all of these. What you thought, Elkanah, was a blessing to me was something that missed my greatest need. Now, men, this is, men, this is just a side note, okay? This is a side note. I'm going to stop preaching. I'm just going to go to meddling to us, okay? I feel sorry for Elkanah because I'm so much like him. I really am. You are too. You're just not laughing about it. And here's what it is. Sometimes we think this is the thing that best ministers to my wife and we get it wrong. You know what my wife needs? She just needs some more clothes. My wife needs a new, a new piece of furniture. My wife needs a new piece of jewelry. And sometimes we think the thing that will medicate the pain that our wives are feeling are the things that never touch what they really need. We really need to be careful and watch. And Elkanah wasn't paying attention. Now look, look at the next verse. Verse eight, and Elkanah, her husband, said to her, okay, he puts all these stakes in front of her. She got five, she got 10. There's Hannah looking at him. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? I love this. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Am I not more to you than 10? Can you believe this? He's saying, baby, 
Am I all you need? Look at me. What else do you need? Let me tell you, I told you that Hannah's name means grace. I told you that Peninnah's name means pearl or venomous. I didn't tell you what Elkanah's name meant. Elkanah's name, when you translate it in Hebrew, it's Bubba. So (laughs) if your name's Bubba here today, I apologize. I'm sorry. He just didn't get it. And the thing that he missed was this, was that her greatest need was more than what he could physically give her, that she needed healing from the Lord. And this is just another side note. Listen, sometimes you know what we end up doing? We medicate our pain with the wrong things. Isn't that true? Some of us medicate our pain with food. Some of us medicate our pain with possessions. Some of us medicate our pain with leisure. Some of us medicate our pain maybe in relationships. Some of us medicate our pain with substance. And none of it fills the void that only God can fill. And so what's happening here is that there is this process that God uses pain to build character. And you know what we want to do? We want character. We want godliness. We want maturity. But we don't want the pain that goes with it. And we're like that so much in our Christian life. Lord, I just want to be more mature. But we don't want to walk through the painful times that God puts us in the crucibles to burn away the floss of our lives and the impurities to make us like him. We don't want to go through the difficult times of sacrifice and giving to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be like you, but I don't want to go through that valley to get there. And many times God says, the only way for you to get to where I need you is for you to trust me and walk through this pain and watch me do a work in you that will not happen apart from this. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're in the crucible. You know what we want? We want the mountain stream and all of its sound without the rocks. We want the harmony of the piano without the minor notes. We want to be able to experience the blessings of life without the surrender of our own passions. We don't want to go through the mundane things of pain every single day in order to be made into the image of God. We don't want to go through all the difficult hiking to get to the top of the mountain. But one person said it this way, the joy of the mountaintop is only reached through an investment in the mundane. And it is as you and I walk through the pain of our lives and we give that pain to the Lord and here's what we do. We rest in him to build the godly character he wants to build. Joseph spent two years in prison in the Old Testament and I love it. It says that God put iron in his soul. And it's through those difficult times. Listen, some of you have pain that you've been walking through and it's been a while and you need to rest in God. You need to just trust in him. You need to endure through all of this time and say, Lord, I know that you're wanting to do something here with this pain. And rather than me becoming bitter about it, I want to become better. So I submit it to the Lord Jesus. I rest in you and I trust you to do in me the work that only you can do. Leads to the third point. Pain and godly character accompanied with prayer brings victory. I love this. She has been provoked in pain. 
She's given it to the Lord. She's been waiting on him to build this godly character in her life. And now it's time for her to really pour out her heart before the Lord. You know, it's interesting. We don't see any other time in any of these passages where she prayed that God would remove her from her barrenness. Not one time. But now she comes to that place fully trusting God and believing that God has done this work in her. Here's what it says in verses 9 and 10. And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, I love this, Hannah rose. It's time to move. It's time to go to the Lord. She rose. Where did she rise to do? She rose to go to the temple to pray. Now, I want you to know how unusual this is. Hannah in the Old Testament is seen as one of the most pious women because she's the only woman in the Old Testament that has actually gone to the temple to pray. She's the only person in the Old Testament who the first character, in fact, who has used the title Lord of Hosts. It's mentioned before, but she's the first one to call on him as Lord of Hosts. She's the first woman in the Old Testament to make a vow before the Lord. And she's the first one to be able to rise and go and worship. So she rises up. They're all eating. They're celebrating. God has been doing this work in her heart. And she makes her way to the temple. And Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed. And she prayed to the Lord. And she wept bitterly. She was still hurt. She was still broken, but in the midst of that, she's trusting God. And what does she do? She goes to him in prayer. What did she pray? Here's what she prayed. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. There are four things she understood in her prayer. Let me give these to you that, that brought great victory. Number one, she understood the power of prayer. She's the first character in the Old Testament to refer to God as the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? That means he's above all things. He's mag ma majestic. He's above all armies. He's above all powers. He is above all things. There's nothing he cannot do. There's nothing that's not under his feet. And therefore, she understood that I can go to God with full confidence and knowing this, that he can do anything, no matter what, even if it seems impossible to men. And he's the only one that I need to bring this request to because he's the only one who can do anything about my situation. And so she had this incredible understanding of the power of prayer. Here's the second thing she knew. She understood the posture of prayer. Three times in that passage, she calls herself your servant. She didn't come before the Lord arrogantly, presumptuously, she came before the Lord in full humility and in full submission. I love this about her because as she comes before him with a specific need, she does it with great humility. I want to tell you, sometimes we may go before the Lord too arrogantly. We love to talk about that we can go with boldness before the throne of Christ. We can because of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, we can enter into the throne room of Almighty God. We can go with boldness, but we never go with presumption and we never go with arrogance and we never go with demanding. He is our Father, but He is the King of the universe. 
And what we do is we always have the right posture when we go before him. The third thing, there was a price of prayer. She said, if you give me what I'm asking, I will give him back to you. This wasn't a bargain with God. This was a commitment to God that I don't even have the son. I don't even know if I'm going to have him. But if you give him to me, he will be a Nazarite. His hair will never be cut. And he will be yours all the days of his life. You know what we, we miss a lot of times? We want blessings from God. But we don't want the responsibility that comes with walking with God. We want blessings from him, but I don't want the responsibilities that come in a relationship with him. I want the things that God can give me, but I don't want to submit to him. And I don't want to surrender to him. We have churches across the world today that are filled with people that just simply want to be blessed, but not surrendered. And the true prayer understands this, that listen, it is not just about the blessings, but it is about a full surrender to you. And whatever it is you desire of me, you have. And there's a cost in a relationship with Christ. Here's a fourth thing. The persistence of her prayer. She refused to give up praying. There was a persistence in her prayer, even when she was criticized. What happens? Look at the next verses. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were um, moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you um, go on being drunk? Put your wine from you. I mean, she's crying out of her heart. And here's this self-righteous, overweight priest You'll find that later in the book of Samuel, who actually dies because of he falls off her stool and breaks his neck. But he is judging her and her brokenness. She must be drunk. Something must be wrong with her. And here's what she says. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Everybody else had been doing that. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answers, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, ate, and her face was no longer sad. I love the way that ends. No longer sad. Why? She brought it before the Lord. God had done a work through the pain of her life, and she's given it to him. And as that godly character is being built in the confidence that she has in God, she goes before him. She leaves it with him. She rises and said, Father, you're in charge. I trust you. She rose and she ate, and her face was no longer sad from that point on. Why? She had full confidence in God. And I want to tell you this. There are many times where you and I bring petitions to the Lord and we're trusting him. And there are other people around us watching us pray and watching us make these commitments. And rather than engaging with us and, and encouraging us, they criticize us. You're praying for what? You really think God would do that? No, no, no. You know what? Your problem is you're just fanatical. 
and you're just too fanatical about your, your relationship with God. You, you, you can't expect God to do all of those things. And you know what I've come to understand about that term fanatical? Fanatical means they just love Jesus more than you. And sometimes we're upset and we, 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 we label people as radical and fanatical because their life demonstrates more of a commitment and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus than does ours, and it brings conviction to us, so we got to call them something. And sometimes in your life when you're praying and you're calling out to God, and there may be people around you saying, no, no, don't waste your time in that. You pursue what God's put in your heart regardless. And you keep running after him. What happens? They rose early the next morning and they worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, what does that mean? That means that God answered her prayer. She conceived and she had a son, but not just any son, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Through her pain, through her godly character, and through her prayer and confidence in Almighty God. What did she do? She kept her promise. Verse 24, and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull and ephah of flour and skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. He was probably three, four years old. Then they slaughtered a bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. In chapter two, verse 21, you know what it says? God opened her womb. She had three more sons and two daughters. Five kids. When you give a child to the Lord, he gives you five more. Some of you are thinking, I ain't giving my kid away. <laughs> but the reality is this, that God used this provocation for his purpose. So let me wrap this up this morning. What is God teaching us today? For some of you, God is provoking you right now to give him your pain. You don't need to carry that. Somebody's hurt you, I know. Somebody has mistreated you, I know. But he's calling you to surrender that to him right now. Put it into the hands of the Lord Jesus and let him deliver you from that. For some of you, God is provoking you to wait on him. You have given him your pain, and there seems to be more pain compiled on top of it. And yet God is wanting to do a work in your life through his spirit and his word that he wants to make you more like Jesus. And it's only through this valley that you're going to get there. You need to trust him. And be like Hannah that just prolongs and engages with this and stands with the godly character of patience and endurance. God is calling you to wait on him. And for some of you, God is provoking you to pray. You've done everything but pray. And now it's time for you to rise up. It's time for you to get up and to bring to him the things that only he 
can do. Children of God, it's a beautiful lesson of how God wants to take the pain of our lives every day and to make us like Jesus. Your pain will make you bitter or it will make you better. God's desire is that you will be formed and fashioned into the image of his son. For those of you who are not believers, listen carefully. You've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And today the Holy Spirit is provoking your spirit to come to Jesus. He's your only hope. You see, you've been trying to medicate your own pain all through your life. You've been trying to do all the things to satisfy the emptiness of your soul. Some of you are going on quest in academia and searching for truth, and you've never found it. Some of you are looking into pleasures. Some of you are looking into relationships. Some of you are looking into the things that the world has to offer to medicate the emptiness of your life. And the Lord Jesus is standing before you. He says, I'm the one who died for that pain. I'm here for you. And whether you're watching online or you're in this room, the Lord Jesus is here and he's speaking to your heart right now. He's saying, quit running after that pain. Run after me. And I will remove the pain and use it for my glory and for your good. Provocation is not always bad because God uses those kinds of things to do his greatest work in us. Do you know how a goldsmith purifies gold? It's not pleasant. Take the gold in its rawness and you heat it and you melt it and you put it into the fire until all the impurities and the dross burn off and they come to the surface. And then that goldsmith scoops all of it up and then he puts it back in the crucible. And he does it until all the impurities of that gold are melted and burned away. Until when he pulls that gold out of the fire, the only thing he can see in it is the reflection of his face. And the Lord uses pain to pull the impurities of our lives. Because his desire is to see himself in you. Embrace the pain. See it as what God wants to do to build character. And then rise up and go to him. Let's pray. Father, I don't know where every person in this room or who's watching is feeling in these days. But we know that pain is inevitable. The Lord Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And so, Father, I pray that you would remind your body today that while the enemy wants to use the pain to paralyze us, you want to use the pain to energize us, to be something we've never been for your glory. And, Father, for those who, who are carrying this pain, today would you encourage us to leave it with you? And Father, let you do your work in your sovereign time, in your sovereign way that you would be honored and glorified. And Father, I pray for those who are without Christ that right now 
they would just surrender to you. That right now, they would lift up their hearts to you and say, God, forgive me. I give you all of my life. I give you my past. I give you my present. I give you my future. I surrender completely to you, and I ask Jesus to be the Lord of my life, that I might glorify him in all things. Father, I ask that you would accomplish these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.